Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Well, the grace and the peace of our Lord be with all of us gathered here today. I want to invite you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, there is one nearby in the pew in front of you or in the chair near you in the Family Life Center. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, why don't you take that one? Let that be our gift to you as we explore the Word of God together. Today we will be in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. John 10, verse 1. As you're finding your way there, I'm reminded on days when meteorological challenges keep some of us from coming to the church house, I'm reminded of what my dear friend and predecessor uh, Bill Self would say, the, the bright and the beautiful have come. But on a day like this, I think, I think it may be appropriate to say the saintly and the soggy have come. I'm grateful to you for being here today. I especially am grateful because Laura and I get to welcome some good friends to our home for a couple of days every once in a while. Uh, David and Mary Harding and Mary Grace, their daughter, is here with them. You know David and Mary Harding, they've been here. Uh, they have been on this platform and shared. Uh, they are our friends from Orlando and our Ethiopian connection. We, we have spent some time together in Ethiopia because of their love for that nation and their, their people. Um, and I want you to do me a favor. Would you be kind and give a JCBC welcome to my friends, the Hardings? Yeah. Today we are in the fourth part of an ongoing series called I Am. And we've been marveling at the mystery that who Jesus says that he is has every shaping power to not only inform, but to transform everything that we are. In as much as we are willing to yield ourselves to that powerful exchange, who we are is defined by who he is. We've been talking for some time and among our conversations, there emerges a quote from G.K. Beale from time to time. And I will say what he said, which is people revere all kinds of things. We revere money, we revere success, we revere power, we revere stuff. But what we revere most, we resemble. Whether for our ruin or our restoration. And if we revere more than anything else, Jesus, the Christ of God, something beyond words happens within us. The longer we revere him, the more we become like him, the more we resemble him in the world. 
back on Ash Wednesday just three weeks ago, I talked a little bit about the experience of looking at the cross as if looking into a mirror. That as we gaze upon the cross of Christ, we cannot help but fix our eyes on all of that which was in him that caused him to yield himself to the power of crucifixion and sacrifice. And we see in him upon the cross mercy and grace and compassion and forgiveness. And yet it's almost like looking in a mirror because when we see the things that put him on the cross, we recognize two things simultaneously. It is we who put him on the cross. And the second thing we notice is that everything that kept him there, the goodness, the loveliness, the purity of heart, the holiness, the compassion at times is missing in us. So it's like looking in a mirror and we reflect the reality that we are missing the things that are so Christly in him. But as Paul says, the longer we fix our gaze upon him, the longer we lean our human energy and attention and affection upon him and into him, the more something happens. We, we begin to despise those parts of us that don't reflect his image. And in so doing, we allow what is in him to replace those broken parts. And we take on the very character of the one we revere. So in time, we, as the scriptures say, degree by degree, bit by bit, day by day, become transformed more into his image until the point, as Paul says, that when Christ looks at us, eventually Christ looks at us as if looking into a mirror at himself. Beloved, who he is has every shaping power, not only to inform, but transform everything that is in us. And if I wanted to simplify everything I just got through saying to you, I would say who I am is who he says I am. I am who he says I am. And nothing could be more hope-filled for somebody today because I promise you, somebody has gathered in worship today in here, in the sanctuary, the Family Life Center, somebody is watching us right now online and you've gone through a thing. And you've gone through a thing to such a degree that it's like taking those old snow globes. Remember, you pick them up, you shake them up, you set it down and nothing is in the same place as it was before and you look at yourself in that mirror and you don't know what has become of your life. I don't know that there could be any more important series of conversations than this one because who he is determines who you are. That's why today we turn our attention to another passage in scripture because in the gospel of John, Jesus has seven sayings that we call the I am sayings of John. And these seven sayings are self-declarations, words of Jesus about who Jesus says Jesus is. So these many weeks leading up to Easter, we are attempting to know something about him so that what we know about him draws us closer to him and transforms us. So we read from the Gospel of John chapter 10, verse 1. Very truly I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in through another way as a thief and abandoned. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. 
The gatekeeper opens the door for him. And the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own out, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. They were not picking up what he was putting down. So he tried harder. And we read these words. So again, Jesus said, let's take another shot at this. Very truly, I tell you, I am the, um, the gate, the door for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In this passage that we are studying this morning, you can already see that two more of the I am statements are beginning to emerge in this 10th chapter of John. Next week, we'll get to one of them. You can already see the vibe, can't you? We're talking sheep and sheepfolds and shepherds. So you know we're headed to a place where Jesus says very famously in that very next verse that we didn't read, I am the good shepherd. But for today, although we are surrounded by all kinds of sheepish verses about the shepherd, understand that we're going to focus on one of the sayings, which is I am the door. I am the door. To understand something about what Jesus was attempting to say in I am the door, we got to understand the context of first century Palestine and sheep tending. See, there are or were at least at least two kinds of sheepfolds in first century Palestine. Let's talk about the first one for just a moment. The first kind is in a city center or maybe a village or a town. And at the end of a long day, shepherds would bring their flocks to one common sheepfold, a large gate that was tended by a gatekeeper. And all the shepherds would bring all their flocks into the same sheepfold. They would mix all together and the gatekeeper would recognize the the shepherd. They knew one another and trusted one another. He'd open the gate and the shepherd would lead his sheep into the sheepfold and they'd shut the gate. And at night there would be all kinds of sheep, maybe dozens of sheep, maybe hundreds of sheep. And they go and do doing what sheep do through the night. And then the shepherd goes to rest. And the next morning in this particular kind of sheepfold, the next morning the shepherds would return and the gatekeeper would open the gate And the shepherd would only have to call out the names of his sheep, only speak the words or sing a song or play an instrument. And the sheep who recognize the voice of their own particular unique shepherd would follow the shepherd out of the sheepfold and go to graze within pastures nearby. 
Now, what's interesting about this particular kind of sheepfold is that Gary Berg, a theologian and expert in Middle Eastern studies, tells the true story of in the 1980s, the Palestinian uprising caused the Israeli army to take harsh measures against particular villages and towns in the area. The Israeli army uh, took out its, its vengeance on a particular uh, village that had not paid its taxes. And they punished that village by taking up all of the village animals, all the flocks, all the sheep. And they gathered them into one massive sheepfold that was homemade out of barbed wire. This went on for a little while. About a week later, a woman, an older woman from the village that had been uh, approached by the army and, and whose, whose animals had been all um, acquired by the army, this woman shows up there at this massive sheepfold and she seeks the audience of the officer in charge and she makes her appeal. My husband has died. All I have is my son and these sheep are the only way we can make a living. Without them, we will, we will die. We will starve. And the officer said, I wish I could help you, but look, there are so many sheep. There's no way that you can separate your sheep from the others. And she said, if I could separate my sheep from the others, can I take them home? And he kind of grinned about it, laughed a little and said, sure, opens up the gate. She looks to her son and her son produces a small wooden kind of reed flute out of his pocket and begins to play a song that he had played hundreds of times out in the field, out in the wilderness while grazing. And all of a sudden, looking over this sea of sheep, he plays this song and sheep heads <laughs> begin to, I know that song. Wait, I, hang on, I've heard that one. But I know how that one goes. And then they began to move toward the sound. Of, and the woman and the son did nothing but turn around and walk back toward their home with 25 of their sheep following close behind. And this is the sheepfold, the kind of sheepfold Jesus is talking about when he said, look, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. They know my voice. Jesus is attempting to introduce the possibility that we might know God in such an intimate way that we are known and we know. His voice. Sheep know the voice of the shepherd. It's as if hearing a familiar voice. I know that voice. Well, that's the voice that with whom I shall not want. Yeah, that's, that's the voice. I know I've heard it a thousand times. That's the voice that maketh me to lie down in green pastures. That's, that's, what that, that's the voice that leadeth me beside still waters and restores my soul. That's the one who leads me down the right paths and not the wrong paths. And it doesn't matter to me as long as I hear that voice, if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because that voice belongs to the one that has a rod and a staff that comfort me, see. Sheep know the voice of the shepherd and Jesus is attempting to demonstrate to them at first, I know we're not supposed to be talking about the shepherd yet, that's next week, but I gotta stop long enough to tell you that he's trying to say you can be known by God and you can know God with such intimacy that with one sound of his voice, you're already comforted. You're already brought to green pastures and still waters. But 
But before we move past this to get to what I really want to talk about today, I am the door. I got to tell you, it is possible to know the shepherd that well, to have him speak in such a way that recenters you when life is out of kilter. Yet sheep won't know the voice of the shepherd unless they spend time with the shepherd. You can't know the voice of your shepherd unless you spend time with the shepherd. These sheep only knew his voice because of hours and hours and hours of grazing and watering and resting and migrating and grazing and watering and resting and migrating. The sheep know everything about the shepherd. They know what he looks like. They know his scent. They, they know his mood and temperament day by day. They know his speed and his pace. They know his voice. And if you don't know the voice of the shepherd, what makes this a crisis is that in the midst of crisis, we will listen to any voice that attempts to lead us in the paths of righteousness. And I know what it's like. There is somebody here today who is exhausted because you are in the middle of a thing and you've been listening to what seems to be every good voice telling you what to do about it. And you read the good books about it. You listen to good sermons about it. You go see a good therapist about it. You listen to your best girlfriend, your best boyfriend tell you everything that you're supposed to do about it. You listen to Oprah and Oprah will tell you what to do about it. But none of these voices, as good as they are, are the voice of the shepherd. And until we get to the place where we spend time with him daily, we will never recognize his voice. Do you know, I was reading about Martin Luther earlier this week and, you know, he would spend an hour in the morning in prayer, nothing but prayer in the morning. And then he said, I would spend an hour in prayer in the morning, but then I got really busy. I got so busy that I decided what I needed was three hours in prayer. It is an anchoring piece to the day, but more than that, it is the only thing that can lead you in and out and find pasture in this life. It might be that somebody just showed up today and that's all you need to hear. When you're done, you still have to listen to the rest of the sermon. But maybe all you needed to hear was this, the shepherd wants some time with you. That's it. We seem to overcomplicate things. All it takes is stillness and quiet to hush the cacophony of voices that seem to speak in such a way as to give us care and guidance and shepherding when there is only one shepherd of the soul. And it takes quiet and stillness and routine every day to hear him. But that's next week. So Jesus attempted to say all of that in such a way that they heard it, but they weren't picking up what he was putting down. It's like I've told you before, it's like Archie Bunker and Edith. The problem with us, Edith, is that I speak perfect English, but you listen in dingbat. He was speaking perfect Aramaic and they were listening in something else. So he takes another shot at it and picking up in verse seven, he says, let's take another run. And this is what he says. So again, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, I am the, the door, the door for the sheep. 
All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. Whoever enters by me will be saved. The word there literally means will be kept safe and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the door. I am the door. I've been thinking about doors a lot the last couple of weeks. There are all kinds of doors, really, beautiful doors, historic doors, important doors, world-famous doors. Uh, Laura and I have had the opportunity to see some of the most amazing doors in the world. In Florence, Italy, at the baptistry of St. John, or uh, uh, the, the baptistry was, was created in uh, 1059. That's old. 1059, just five years after the great schism between the East and the West. And after 15 or 20 years, they completed construction of this baptistry. And there are these doors on the East and West that are gorgeous. They're made of brass and their art is in relief style, kind of 3D. And it depicts the life of Jesus and the life of faith that is possible to all who walk through the waters it occurs to me, as Michelangelo, who lived there sometime after that, lived there a couple, 300 years after the, the building of this, he, he lived there for a while. In fact, that's where the, the David, the statue, the David of Michelangelo is to this day. He said of those doors, those beautiful doors, those ornate doors, these are the gates to paradise. There is a door that leads to paradise. There is a door through which you go to live abundantly and eternally. I've been thinking about doors lately. I've been thinking about another door in 1517 on the, on the front of the castle church at Wittenberg, Germany. And a hot, fiery monk Martin Luther nailing 95 of his grievances against the corruption of the church at the time. And it sparked there the powder keg of reform all throughout Europe. And there is a door through which when you go, you can never come back. A door of renewal, a door of new life. And I've been thinking about doors. But think about another door that we've seen. We've seen the, one of the doors on St. Peter's Basilica in Rome is called the mercy door, or in some places it's called the, the holy door. It's a door that is not opened except every 25 years. It's locked shut. It's barricaded, closed. It, it requires a hammer to breach the seal and the Pope every 25 years on the year of Jubilee, as it is named, will open the doors so that the world will see an invitation to enter into the mercies of God. There is a door through which mercy comes. There's another door on a 
a small beat up little mission church in South Africa, Johannesburg, South Africa. There is a, 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 a door, a sign on the outside of the church that has a little opening, an opening just beneath the sign. The sign is called the door of hope where mothers who are desperate, who are afraid for the well-being of their new babies, who cannot take care of their babies, can bring their babies and just inside the door leave them for someone who is devoted to care for them, love them, raise them. There is a door that literally can save your life. And of course, there's a door I've never been to it before. I, there's a museum in Los Angeles, I'm told, called the Museum of Tolerance. And I'm told that at the Museum of Tolerance, there are two doors to choose from when going inside. One is the door of prejudice. The other is not prejudice. And most everybody goes to the not prejudice door, but it's locked. You can't get in. And it lights up and says, think, now go through the other door. There is a door that has the capacity to reveal even our own blind prejudices, our own assumptions about life that keep us spiraling further and further away from Christliness. I'm thinking about doors. Did you know that in the Bible, door appears more than 400 times as a way to understand what it means to travel this spiritual journey with God? Doors, I, in fact, I got so hung up on doors. Yesterday, I counted all the doors in my house. I'm talking every kind of door. Front door, back door, bathroom door, bedroom door, pantry door, oven door, right? Cabinet doors. I stopped counting at 170 doors in my house. Some of them are there to keep some stuff in and some of them are there to keep some people out. But it, it occurs to me that every door has one common purpose. Every door, large or small, ornate or plain, has one purpose. See, a door is access. A door is access. A door is that by which you must enter to access what's on the other side. A door is that through which we enter in order to access what's on the other side. I don't care what it is on the other side. You're looking for mercy. You're looking for newness of being, new life, forgiveness, another shot. You can't get to the other side of things without going through a door. I'm here to tell you, my sisters and brothers, every one of us at some point in our journey will be on the outside of something needing to get in or we're on the inside of something and we want out. But you can't get there but through the door. Are you with me? You can't get there but through the door. I had a door on the apartment I lived in when I was in college and we had four of us there, four smelly college guys in this two bedroom apartment about a mile or two from campus. And it was our senior year, my last semester, and it was crunch time. I was a double major in psychology and religion. I had everything due, papers, exams, and I was working long hours in the cafeteria, doing banquets, mopping floors. It was crunch time and lots of stuff was due. We rolled out early in the morning 
to go to our first shift. And we're sharing a car because one of us had a car that was broken down and we're just trying to pull it together for the final semester, right? We pull away from our apartment and I realize that we have left something important in the apartment and it was something, I don't know what it was, something I was supposed to turn in, an exam, a paper or something, I don't know. I can't remember now, it's a blur. We turn around to go back and we try to get inside the apartment. I can't get inside because we have locked ourselves out of the apartment. Now the clock is ticking. We're going to be late again. Can't be late again. So I turn to my roommate and this is a direct quote. I say to him, this, these words, I say, how much did we pay for our deposit? Our security deposit. He said, I think 200. I said, huh. Then I calculated in my mind what it would take to replace the door frame. Two steps back and I kicked that sucker right in, knocked it right off the door frame, off the hinges. We got what we needed. We propped it back up and lost our deposit completely. <laughs> A door is that through which you must enter in order to get to the other side of the thing. I've been thinking about that a bit as Jesus said, I am the door. See, I told you a moment ago that there are two kinds of sheepfold. The first kind is in the city center where all the shepherds bring their sheep and they sort them out in the morning by recognizing the voice. But there is another kind. I want to tell you about that one right now. The other kind of sheepfold is out in the bush, out in the wilderness, out where they are far from the city or village because sometimes you gotta go where the food is, which means you gotta travel more than a day away. Sometimes you gotta stay overnight or over multiple nights so you construct a sheep fold or a pen out in the wilderness or out in the fields. In fact, there were some who would actually make money creating these remote sheep folds. This is what some of them look like. Some of them look quite nice. They're high enough to keep the sheep in, high enough to keep the predators out. And there's another one here that's kind of hastily thrown together, but it does the job. Sometimes you may come across a sheepfold that looks like this. It uses the earth itself and it's built into the side of an embankment. They finish out the, the circle in such a way as to corral the sheep. But in each one of these, notice what is present. An open passageway with no door. In each one, there is an opening where the sheep come in and where the sheep go out. But there is no door with three hinges and a knob and it's painted nicely. There, in the early part of the 20th century, Sir George Adam Smith, a theologian and scholar, went for the first time to Palestine and he came across a shepherd out in the wilderness to one of these sheepfolds. He's amazed by it because he walks up and he sees all the sheep inside, but there's this open door and he says to them, aren't you afraid that the sheep will come out? Or aren't you afraid that an animal will come in and take your sheep? And these are the words he said, no, I'm not, because it is my body that will lie in the opening through the night. A sheep will, I mean, a shepherd will lie down in the open space and actually become the door. And this shepherd tells Sir Smith. He says, you see, a sheep can't get out without going over my body and a, a wolf can't get in without going through my body. And that's not happening tonight. When I was young, I, you know, those who are close to me, I, I tend to be pretty protective of, which meant as a kid, I got in a few strongly worded negotiations 
with people who talk smack about my family or my people or my friends, those who I loved. One day I was in high school and this guy had a problem with my brother. And he was older than me, big guy, looked like Andre the Giant. I mean, not just in size, but it kind of looked like him, you know, mean guy, you know, uh, you know, like different bone structure, you know, like jaw, like a Cro-Magnon, you know, and growing, growing hair in places that our species doesn't grow hair anymore, you know, knuckles dragging the ground. I mean, you know, big guy and he's, he's messing with my younger brother. So one day I see him and he's at the water fountain. I walk up to him and I say, hey, listen, uh, you got a problem with my brother? And he's bending over at the water fountain and he slowly leans up, you know, from the water fountain, wipes his chin, he stands up and he keeps standing. It's like he keeps, he's like, and I'm like, hey, so yeah. And, and he said, maybe, maybe, maybe so. And then he proceeded to describe to me in detail what he planned to do to my brother. So I say to him, you know, I try to use my words, try to use my, my mind, try to negotiate with that. So I say to him, okay, you can do all those things, but you can't, you can't do it till Monday. He said, why is that? I said, because it's going to take all weekend to get through me. And then I proceeded to tell him some things that are not in the Bible. I just want you. <laughs> Jesus said, there will be wolves. There will be thieves, robbers, bandits. This world will show you troubles. They will come, but they will not get to you because I am the door. And to get to you, they've got to get through me and they're not getting through me. Somebody here needs to be reminded as full of uncertainty as you may be, you are in the hand of the shepherd. Even as you sleep through the night under the threat of predators that are all around you, he is the door. And I've been, I've been thinking a little bit about that. And if Jesus is the door and the time is upon us here, but you, can I have five minutes? Okay, so you give me five, I'll give you five and that's 10, right? I've been thinking about Jesus being the door. And if Jesus is who we say he is, and I believe that he is the Christ of God, fully human, fully divine. I believe that in him, as the Colossians writer would say, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And if that's true, then in this Galilean carpenter, the fullness of the Christ of God, the Christ, the preeminent Christ, the Christ who existed before all time was in him. But if he was in Christ, if Christ was in Jesus in the first century, this can't have been the first time he acted like a door to a small audience of people who would listen and then write down a, a few words about it. This can't have been the first time that he acted like a door. It's got me thinking that sometimes doors don't look like doors. I think of a door as wooden with a knob, with some hinges, maybe painted nicely. But sometimes a door doesn't look like a door because I believe the first time we see this great door of the ages must have been at the creation. When the waters above 
were being held back from the waters below until in God's good and perfect timing, God opens a door and and all of creation is flooded with new life and there are these beautiful hues of greens and blues and there's life teeming everywhere. See, the door is the access point for creation itself. A door is access. I think about how sometimes a door doesn't look like a door, but sometimes a door finds itself on the side of an ark. And we, we hear stories like Noah and the flood, and we assume that those stories are about God destroying the earth and destroying the world with, with a flood, but that's not what the story is all about. The story of the flood is not about God destroying the world. The story of the ark is about a God who would choose to, to rescue a family from a world of destruction. And sometimes a door affixed on your ark is to keep you from the destruction that is to come. See, this can't have been the first time that Jesus acted like a door. The Christ of God has been a door from the beginning of time. I'm thinking about the patriarchs like Jacob. He goes to sleep on a rock, a rock for a pillow in a land that he doesn't know, but he is certain that the land is bereft of God. The presence of God is nowhere to be found. He falls asleep on a rock and he has this dream where there's this opening to heaven and he sees the presence of God in like a, a, like a ladder with angels ascending and descending. And he wakes up from the dream and he says, oh my word, surely the presence of God is, is here, is in this place. Surely this is the Bethel, the Bethel, the house of God. For I have found the gate, the door to heaven. See, sometimes the great door, the Christ of God, will at times open up your capacity to see that in this plain world, bereft of anything beautiful or holy, there are places so thin that you don't know where earth stops and heaven begins, that the presence of God is everywhere near you. That's what a door does. A door is access to the holy. I think about Moses with Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt behind him pushing in. And now they've come to the Red Sea and there's nowhere to go. Do you know what it's like to be pinched, pressed into a place where you cannot move backward and you don't know how you're going to move forward. That's when sometimes a door is not made of wood. It doesn't have a knob. It doesn't have hinges. It's made of water where the door of the ages, the great Christ of God sends as the spirit sends the the wind through the night to separate the waters and the, the Red Sea becomes the door to liberation and freedom. I think about Joshua standing at the banks of the river. Choose you this day who you'll serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And they cross the Jordan, which becomes a door to the promised land. I think on and on about the building of the tabernacle or the tent, the, 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 the temple. And in the construction of the temple, we recognize there are outer courts for the unholy, right? And inner courts for those who are a little bit more holy. And then the inner court or the sanctum the inner sanctum or sanctuary, the holy of holies. And we know that there is a curtain, a great veil that divided the holy of holies, God's holy presence from everything profane. 
But the trouble is, what if it wasn't to keep God from everything profane? What if it was the beginning of the access point to actually access the divine? Which is why when Christ was crucified, the great door of the ages rent from top to bottom and forever any separation or illusion of separation between us and God. See, the door is about access. Accessing that which you can't access on your own. And, and I don't know if maybe you came today and, and you're at a place where you, you are either on one side of a thing or the other. And you need to find a way to kind of bridge the gap between. And maybe you, you, you're already past a thing, but you're not quite in the other. He is the Lord of the liminal space. The one who could guide you from one place to the next. He is the door. And maybe today it's a, it's a time in your life, a season when he is, he's asking you to close all trap doors, to stop walking through all false doors, to stop jiggling the handle at all locked doors and to come through him the one true door. Now there's one last verse I want to leave you with because the door himself spoke about a door. In the third chapter of the book of Revelation, verse 20, we hear these words. Behold, I, the door, stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It may be that today you've come to a place where you recognize that what is pounding within your chest is more than your blood pumping muscle. Maybe it's the stirring of your spirit. Maybe it's the knocking on the heart of your soul and it is the great door asking for you to let him in to be your great shepherd to be your access point to life so that you may go in and come out and find pasture the thief comes to steal kill and destroy but I come says the door that they may have life and have it to the fullest